Well, why don't we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. My Bible reading plan had me reading through 1 Corinthians um, about a month ago. And something stood out to me here that I had not seen before. Um, And so I, I wanted to spend some time looking at this. We're going to start reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17, and we're going to read it in, in two separate sections. We'll read one part, discuss it a little bit, and then move on to the second part. So beginning in verse 17, it says, this is Paul speaking, but in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this, I will not praise you. So what's going on here in this section? Um, The best that I can make from it after reading some commentaries on this, the basics are that the Corinthians... Um, gathered together as a church, as you see there in verse 18, it says, when you come together as a church. Within the church body, though, there were some differences. There was some who were well-off and others who were poor. And when they came together, they were eating a meal. And whether or not it was specifically coming together to eat, as we call it, the Lord's Supper, and as Paul refers to it, the Lord's Supper, whether or not that was the express purpose of the gathering or whether or not it was a fellowship meal um, that was taking place doesn't seem real clear from this passage here. But either way, no matter how you look at it, there were problems that were arising. And we'll look at these problems in just a minute. But beyond this, the details... Um, are a little hard to figure out, but we don't need to know all the details of the situation to be able to glean some truths from this. And so that's what I want to do is just stick to some areas that we can see very clearly from this passage, some truths that we can draw out from this. So the first thing is the Corinthians' attitude was affecting their behavior. Their attitudes were affecting their behavior. And isn't this always the way that it is? We'd like to think that somehow we can compartmentalize our lives and have our thoughts and our attitudes in one little compartment and our actions in a separate compartment. But that's not the way it is. What's in our hearts will always come out in our behavior. It's always going to affect our behavior in some way. Luke chapter 6 verse 45 says this, The good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth what is good. So a good heart results in good deeds. And it goes on. And the evil man, out of the evil treasure, brings forth what is evil. An evil heart brings forth evil deeds. For his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. 
So what we see from that is what's in the heart will always come out. If there are problems with the root system of a tree, it's always going to result in problems with the fruit. That you can't have bad roots and good fruit. It just doesn't work. If the roots are bad, so will the fruit. So what was wrong with the Corinthians' behavior? And again, without knowing all the details, we can at least identify one clear problem. They were acting in a very selfish way. Um, here's what the passage says about them. If we look at this in verse 18, uh, it says there were divisions. I hear that divisions exist among you. And then skip over to verse 21. It says each takes his own supper first. So you get this idea that there's instead of this sharing amongst the believers, it's coming together and eating your own supper first. Uh, verse 22 says they shamed those who had nothing. And then if you, we're not going to get this far, but if you skip to the end of the chapter, uh, verse 33 says, so then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Well, that implies that there was a impatience and a selfishness about going on without waiting for one another. So their selfish, self-centered attitude was being fleshed out in their interactions with one another as they gathered. Again, what's in the heart affects our behavior. Selfishness always divides. And this reminds me of um, these videos that we've been watching out here on Thursday evenings by Paul Tripp on marriage. And one of the things that he pointed out this last time is that sin is antisocial. Um, and sin, or more specifically, you could say selfishness is only concerned about me. And he brings out three things over and over. My wants, my needs, my desires. And that really is a good summary of what self is interested in. My wants, my needs, my desires. Well, when a group of people gather and they are focused on their own wants and desires, division is unavoidable. And the gathering of the saints and the taking of the Lord's Supper is to be a reminder to us of the oneness of the body, but through their selfishness, it was actually causing division within the body. So a selfish, self-centered attitude, we could say, is one of the root causes of the Corinthians' behavior that Paul is rebuking and correcting. But is it the root? Is that as deep as it goes? They were just being selfish. Well, I think that in any sin against another person, um, a lack of love is always at the root. You can go deeper than selfishness and say there's a lack of love there. An unkind word, an impatient response, a self-centered attitude, they all trace back to a lack of love. And we don't have to go very far in this letter here in 1 Corinthians to see Paul's description of love in chapter 13. So let's turn a couple of pages over to chapter 13. And I just want to briefly look at a few of these verses here. Verses 4 through 7, you might call this the characteristics of love, what love is and what love is not. And as we read these verses, think about the situation that we've just looked at here in 1 Corinthians 11 and see how love would impact or affect that situation. 
So beginning in verse 4, it says, Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. And I'm going to stop right there. I was looking at some other um, versions of the Bible, just seeing how they uh, differ a little bit in some of these descriptions. And on this one in particular, I found a few others to be helpful. One of them says, love does not dishonor others. And another one says, love does not behave rudely. And I feel like that really, for me anyway, it kind of puts it in my kind of language rather than acts unbecomingly. It describes it for me. Well, let's go on. It says in verse 5, Love does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So if this kind of love were being practiced as described in these verses here, the situation that we just read in chapter 11 would not have even come about. If there was an attitude of love is patient, love is kind, love doesn't dishonor others, love doesn't behave rudely towards others, this situation would have never come about. So love, or more specifically, a lack of love, was at the root problem of, uh, for the Corinthians there. So let's go back then to 1 Corinthians, and we're going to continue reading on in this section. So beginning in verse 23, we'll read uh, down to verse 26. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord uh, Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Well, if we jump right into this portion of scripture here, uh, without considering the passage before, we miss the context and we miss the reason for Paul's exhortation. And this is what really stood out to me as I was reading through this um, earlier. I tend to look in, in my Bible, there's even a little break there at verse 23, and it says the Lord's Supper. And so when you want to think about the Lord's Supper, you might just read these four verses, which is good. It's very edifying. But if we don't take it in context, we miss some and a big part of why Paul had written this. Paul has just exposed the Corinthians' selfish behavior and their lack of love, and then this. He writes this. Why does he rehearse the Lord's words from the eve of his crucifixion? Well, if you're a parent, you've undoubtedly had a situation where you've given correction or instruction to one of your children, and then you've been asked the dreaded question, why? And you promised to yourself that you would never respond in this way, but in a moment of impatience or frustration, you blurt it out. Because I'm your parent and I said so. 
you just want to get the point across. You want obedience right away. Well, there's no instruction in that answer. There's a command, but no help, no instruction. And that is not what Paul is doing here. He's not just commanding them to stop being selfish. He's not just commanding them to do it this way because I said so and I'm an apostle. He's actually giving instruction with the command. He's giving them an example in the person of Christ. The example of Christ accomplishes so much more than any amount of rebuke or correction by itself. Rebuke and correction are necessary. They are needed, but they must be accompanied by pointing the person to Christ. That is where the real conviction and the real help is going to come. It's not by beating someone over the head. You did wrong, you did wrong, you did wrong. Point them to Christ, and that is what Paul is doing here. Paul corrects the Corinthians' selfish, loveless behavior by showing them the selfless, love-filled sacrifice of Christ. He points them to something that is exactly opposite of what they are. They were exemplifying selfish behavior. He points them to Christ who is showing selfless behavior. They were exhibiting loveless behavior, not thinking of one another. And he points them to Christ, to the love-filled example, the sacrifice of Christ. Well, the example of the Lord is never to be observed in a passive sense. And what I mean by that is we shouldn't remember the Lord or consider the Lord in the same way that we might look at a beautiful painting. And I'm speaking for myself here. I know everybody might have different artistic tastes. But if you're like me and you see a beautiful painting, you might appreciate its beauty. You might stand there and gaze at it and see all the intricacies of it and appreciate the work that went into it. But if you're like me, as soon as your gaze goes away, you're left unchanged. It doesn't really move you to any different kind of behavior. You looked at it, you appreciated it, now life goes on and away you go. That is not the way it should be when we look to Christ, when we observe Christ. When we consider the life of Christ and his death on the cross, it should always move us to something. It should move us to thankfulness. It should move us to worship. It should move us to awe. It should move us to love him. And it should move us to follow his example. There should be something in our heart that moves us when we look to Christ. It's not just a passive glance at a pretty painting. It is given, Christ is given for our instruction and so that we might follow him. And there are several examples that we could look at in the New Testament that show Christ given as an example for our behavior. But I want to look at just one, and it's in Philippians 2. So let's turn over there real quick. This is a, a favorite passage of mine, but I think it, um, it shows this very clearly. So Philippians chapter 2, and we'll begin reading in verse 3. says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, 
but also for the interests of others. Now, I'm going to stop right there. Those two verses, you might say that's exhortation, that's command. That's Paul exhorting the Philippians to not be selfish. Don't look out just for your own interest, but look out for the interests of one another. Have humility of mind. That's the exhortation, but what's the follow-up here? Verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Paul begins by giving the exhortation, and then he follows it right up with the example of Christ. He points us back to Christ, which is where the real help is going to come. But I like how he doesn't even stop there. He's just given an exhortation. He's just given the example of Christ. But that right there, giving the example of Christ, it's like Paul can't contain himself. He's so uh, fired up about the example of the Lord that he goes on in verse 9, For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. His thinking and meditating upon the example of Christ moved Paul to worship. And that's what you see in verses 9 through 11. Worship, he's praising and exalting Christ because of this example that he gives there in verses 5 through 8. Well, let's go back then to 1 Corinthians 11 and let's look at these verses here of the Lord's, the Lord's words here in verses 23 through 26. I'm just going to read 23 and 24 again. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So it says he took bread. Jesus took bread. And I was thinking of some of the similarities in the contrast here. The Corinthians' selfish attitude was being manifested around a meal. That's where this context is. It's around a meal. Some were eating and others were going hungry. And a meal in Bible times, as you know, oftentimes was pictured or represented by bread. So you have here... Uh, this similarity, the Corinthians with their meal, and you might say bread, and then you have the Lord taking bread with the disciples. So there's similarity there. But consider the contrast. The Corinthians are exemplifying selfish, self-centered behavior, as we looked at previously. But Christ takes the bread and says, this is my body, which is for you. Or as in Luke's account, it says, this is my body which is given for you. Do you hear the contrast there? The selfishness of the Corinthians and then Christ's example, this is my body which is given for you. Self would say, take for yourself. Keep what's yours. Make sure you're happy. Protect your interests. Look out for number one. That's what self is interested in. 
Christ says, I freely give myself for you. It is exactly the opposite. Well, let's move on then. Verse 25. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And I'm going to refer back to Matthew's gospel, which says essentially the same thing, but there's a little bit difference in some of the wording here. So I'm going to read from Matthew uh, chapter 26, just two verses here, verses 27 and 28. It says this, And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sin. So same idea, uh, same account, just a little bit different wording. And again, I want to consider the contrast. In chapter 11 here, we have self-centered, loveless behavior to the extent that some are drunk. But Jesus gives the cup and says, drink from it, all of you. He's giving once again. And then he says his blood is poured out. Um, in the verse before there, in verse 24, it uh, says, my body is for you. Or in Luke's account, it says, my body is given for you. And here he says his blood is poured out. So this is very much the same idea here. Giving of his body, pouring out of his blood. And what a glorious contrast this is. Christ has given all. He thought not of himself. He thought not of his own wants and desires. He gave all. And as it says there in Philippians 2, what we just looked at, he emptied himself. And that made me think of that song that we sing by Charles Wesley, uh, And Can It Be? And one of the lines is, he emptied himself of all but love. That's it exactly. Christ pouring himself out for us, emptying himself completely of everything but love. And here, what, what a picture, what a rebuke, what a help when we consider the Corinthians' behavior and when we consider our own behavior to look to Christ and look to his example. Well, notice this phrase here, this is the new covenant in my blood. This phrase, new covenant, comes up in each of the gospel accounts that record the Lord's Supper. And to understand this, we have to go back and look at the old covenant that was made at Mount Sinai. And when I say go back and look at it, I mean very briefly. So if you, you don't have to turn here because we're really not going to read much. But in um, Exodus chapter 19, Israel came out and camped at the base of Mount Sinai. God called Moses up to the mountain and made a covenant there with Israel. And that's found in uh, verses 5 and 6 of Exodus chapter 19. Then Moses is given the law, and uh, he wrote that down, and that's, uh, at least in the Exodus account, is found in chapters 20 through 23. Um, and then in chapter 24, the people affirm or reaffirm their covenant with God. In verse 3 says, at the end of verse 3, it says, all the words which the Lord has spoken we will do. That's the words of Israel speaking there. And then Moses builds an altar. And I'm going to begin reading in chapter 24, verses 7 and 8. It 
says this, Then he, that is Moses, took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So what do we have here? We have in this account the giving of the covenant at Mount Sinai. There is a covenant, and that's obvious here. There is a law that was found there in verses 20, or chapters 20 through 23, and it goes on beyond that as we continue reading. So you have a covenant and a law, and then there is blood that seals the covenant. Well, if we go back then to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, or if you're still there, what do we have there? Well, we have Christ saying that there's a new covenant, and it's in his blood. So his blood seals this new covenant. Well, it brings up the question, is there a law or a new commandment that accompanies this new covenant? Well, on the same night that the Lord is, these words were recorded, Jesus said this, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's in John 13. Well, this is it. This is the new law. This is the law of Christ. Love one another as I have loved you. And applying this then to our passage here in 1 Corinthians, I think it's right to say this is all implied when Jesus says that the covenant, the new covenant is in his blood. When we read that, it should remind us of the new commandment that he gave us. Love one another as I have loved you. So let's bring this all together here in closing. How does this new commandment apply to this passage in 1 Corinthians 11? Well, if we remember the context, the Corinthians are behaving in a self-centered, loveless way. Paul points them to the example of Christ who gave his body and blood for us. Now, as they partake of the Lord's Supper in the manner that Paul prescribes here, there is meaning and significance behind these words and these elements, the bread and the juice. This new covenant in his blood reminds us that we are commanded to love one another as he loved us. He gave himself for us. And again, in in the same night there, Jesus says this in John 15, Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. So this is the kind of love that we are to have for one another. And this gives some real weight um, to this ordinance of the Lord's Supper. When we take the Lord's Supper, we're to be keeping all this in mind, all that God has done for us, and to love one another as he has loved us. There is a community aspect to the Lord's Supper. It's not done in isolation from one another. It's taken in the context of community with other believers. 
This points to the oneness of the body. We are all members of one body, of the same body, and we're all partaking and remembering together the death of Christ on our behalf. There is also, though, a community obligation. In partaking of the bread and juice with fellow believers, we are committing to love one another as he loved us. And so I just want to close with these verses from John chapter 13, which again, taken from the same night that these words of Christ were recorded. It says this, So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. That says it right there. Christ, the example of Christ is given so that we might follow him, that we might live as he lived, that we might do to one another as he has done for us. So may the Lord help us to see areas where self is still on the throne in our lives. May the Lord help us to see his love and sacrifice for us in a fresh and new way. And may the Lord help us all to follow his example and love one another.